0: Hey everyone, this is a special midweek SRB podcast called Hearing Communism. Five short audio pieces by students in my International Communism undergraduate research seminar at the University of Pittsburgh. I wanted to try something different in this class. Instead of having students write the standard research papers, I had them make short audio documentaries. So in addition to reading and discussing the history of international communism, I taught my five students the basics of audio documentary making, script writing, narration, interviewing, audio editing, and digital recording equipment. This was the first time I've taught such a course, and the audio portion was an experiment The idea was to not only expand my work in audio, it was also to give students an opportunity to learn something new and think about history and how it's presented in a different way. Things were going swimmingly until the coronavirus hit. The audio equipment and recording studio at the university was no longer available. The students had to make do with what they had in quarantine to finish their projects. I'm proud to say that I think they did a wonderful job. And to give them some recognition and a wider audience, I'm sharing them with you. Here are the first two projects. The other three will be out in a few days. So here's part one of Hearing Communism. The first piece is Lysenko's Haunting Legacy by Draven Bechtel-Clark. Draven is a junior at the University of Pittsburgh, studying ecology, philosophy, and Russian studies. This project's topic takes place at the intersection of his interests in plant science and Soviet history. So here's Draven Bechtel-Clark with Lysenko's Haunting Legacy.
1: You might remember learning about Mendelian genetics in high school biology. Punnett squares, offspring ratios, and the like. But those ideas were once the subject of heated debate among scientists. One of the most prominent figures to reject Mendelian genetics was the Soviet agronomist T. D. Lysenko. What was once a simple disagreement between honest scientists eventually became a story of political and intellectual repression. A complete corruption of the scientific method. I'm Draven Bechtel-Clark at the University of Pittsburgh, and this is That Story. Summer, 1948. Lysenko delivers a report on the state of Soviet biology at a session of the All-Union Lenin Academy of Agricultural Sciences. This speech was significant because it marked the point where Lysenko's doctrine became official party doctrine. In his speech, Lysenko draws the distinction between two trends in biology. He states his allegiance to what he calls the Soviet Maturin trend in opposition to the Mendel-Morgan trend. In his speech, he says, A sharp controversy which has divided biologists into two irreconcilable camps has thus flared up over the old question, is it possible for features and characteristics acquired by vegetable and animal organisms in the course of their life to be inherited? The Maituran teaching, which is in essence materialist and dialectical, proves by facts that such dependence does exist. The Mendel-Morgan teaching, which in essence is metaphysical and idealist, denies the existence of such dependence, though it can cite no evidence to prove its point. Here, Lysenko claims to have inherited his school of thought from the Russian scientist I.V. Maturin. He also makes sure to associate his critics with Gregor Mendel and Thomas Hunt Morgan, Austrian and American biologists often credited as the founders of genetics. His narrative of a proletarian scientist struggling against bourgeois elites and his grand promises of wheat yields fit so well into the grander Bolshevik narrative that Lysenko eventually gained the favor of Stalin himself. To find out more about Lysenko, I interviewed Dr. Nikolai Kremensov, historian of science from the University of Toronto. Here he describes Lysenko's rise to power.
2: Many of these propositions he advocated were hotly debated by the... um, scientific community at the time. For instance, uh, when uh, he started advocating uh, the inheritance of acquired characteristics, which is a big element in his uh, doctrine, uh, it provoked a very heated discussion in in various institutions of Soviet biology. Lysenko's doctrine as a doctrine did not become a kind of monopolistic doctrine in Soviet biology until 1948, when it was sanctioned by the party apparatus and, as we know now, Stalin personally. Before that, the checks were there and the scientific community continuously exposed various problems uh, with underlying uh, scientific ideas of Lysenka's doctrine. What happened is that those scientific checks would not stop the expansion of Lysenka's institutional authority. And this is a peculiar feature of the Soviet science system at the time, that the promotion and appointments to, you know, high-level administrative position in science were decided at the high echelon of uh, Communist Party. It was not decided by the scientific community itself. So no matter what scientists would say, The appointments would depend not on scientific arguments, but on the opinions of party bureaucrats, which were, of course, completely ignorant of science, proper, to begin with. And secondly, for them, scientific arguments had much lesser weight, as it were, than, say, ideological or political pronouncements, which Lysenko exploited to his uh, advantage as much as he could. So the institutional power of Lysenko was growing steadily during the 1930s, and he basically removed all of his opponents from administrative positions.
1: Here, Dr. Kremensov explains the role of the Soviet Union's great purge in accelerating Lysenko's institutional power.
2: Many scientific administrators who were appointed to the, you know, responsible positions within the scientific system were arrested, executed, imprisoned, and it resulted in sort of disruption of communication between the scientific community and its governmental patrons. And in this vacuum, as it were, steps Lysenka with his politically correct rhetoric, with his promises of you know, great yields for uh, Soviet agriculture. And of course it appeals to the new generation of communist leaders who are coming into power during this period.
1: It's easy to see Lysenkoism as an indictment of the way science is organized in the Soviet Union. And it is one, but there's a much larger lesson here.
2: Uh, We need to be aware that science is deeply enmeshed in financial, cultural, administrative, and many, many other structures. There is no such thing as, you know, science which is able to judge independently everything. Everything is interlocked, and we need to be able to see these connections in order to understand what's going on right now with our discussions of this or that seemingly purely scientific problem.
1: Lysenko's story has become a cautionary tale against the influence of politics over science. His name has been invoked in the discourse over climate change and the anti-vax movement. Most recently, a piece for the New York Magazine compared Stalin's personal approval of Lysenko's pseudoscience to the president's new obsession with hydroxychloroquine, an anti-malaria drug praised as a coronavirus cure among conservative American media personalities despite a complete lack of evidence for its effectiveness against the virus.
3: I just hope that hydroxychloroquine wins. What do you have to lose? I'll say it again. What do you have to lose? Take it. I really think they should take it.
4: If, you know you've got a fever or if you can't hold your breath for 10 seconds everyone should do that hold your breath for 10 seconds if you can hold your breath for 10 seconds then you're you you do not have uh, you don't have this uh, this disease
3: what are we gonna do about china what are we gonna do about a totalitarian dictatorship where it's okay to sell live virus-infected bats in open-air marketplaces, and then have business travel
1: and tourist travel between that country and the civilized world. Would you recommend, as a doctor, people to have silver in their house for, you for never a pandemic? Be,
2: you never want to be without silver.
1: Silver's solution would be effective.
2: Well, let's say it hasn't been tested on this strain. It's been tested on other strains yeah. of the coronavirus and has been... Uh, able to eliminate it within 12 hours. Yeah. Totally yeah. eliminate it, kills it, and t- deactivates it.
3: Anecdotally,
5: it's been, pu- anecdotal, it just means it hasn't been scientifically tested in mass numbers, but it means it's working. Anecdotally, I arrived at work today. It
3: means it happened. I would rather have my temperature taken, drink beer from a straw, eat a hot dog by going like this and chewing it in a mass and not go at all. That's my decision, you make yours. Now I'm pro-choice, right? And then I see the disinfectant where it knocks it out in a minute, one minute. And is there a way we can do something like that uh, by injection inside or or almost a cleaning? Because you see, it gets on the lungs and it does a tremendous number of the lungs. So it'd be interesting to check that.
1: Judge for yourself, but it seems clear to me that Lysenko's ghost still haunts us. Thank you for listening. I'd like to thank Dr. Kremensow for his time and expertise, as well as Sean Guillory and Max Glider for their guidance. Music by Soul on Strings on the Free Music Archive.
0: That was Lysenko's Haunting Legacy by Draven Bechtel-Clark. Next up is Soviet and American Youth Groups in the 1970s and Social Change by Samantha Mason. Samantha is entering her senior year at Pitt and studies administration of justice with a certificate in Russian, East European, and Eurasian studies. She says that she chose to do her piece on youth groups because of her general interest in them, but she ended up realizing just how important they are to social change throughout So here's Soviet and American youth groups in the 1970s and social change by Samantha Mason.
3: If the children and youth of a nation are afforded opportunity to develop their capacities to the fullest, if they are given the knowledge to understand the world and the wisdom to change it, then the prospects for the future are bright. In contrast... A society which neglects its children, however well it may function in other respects, risks eventual disorganization and demise. Peer groups. Now, how the peer group differs here and differs there. Yes. Now, the peer group obviously here is the big factor. We know what that uh, kid, young guy, it's the, it's the admiration, the respect of his peers that are most important to him rather than that of a parent or a teacher. Yes. And it's not that, that, that we have peer groups and they don't. Uh, in fact, quite the other way, uh, uh, in Soviet society, the peer group is viewed as the print, not the family, but the peer group is viewed as the principal instrument of the process of child rearing. Uh, with us, the peer group is sort of apart from the rest of the society. It, uh, uh, it may even be against the rest of the society because it's there by default. Uh, but the peer group is very powerful.
6: From a Studs Terkel interview in 1970 with Dr. Yuri Brofenbrenner, we've heard that Soviet youth groups were an instrument of child-rearing and that, with knowledge, young people can change society. My name is Samantha Mason, and I'd like to look through a small window of history to youth organizations that served as vehicles for social change and their impact today. There's a certain mysticism surrounding communist and socialist youth groups in the 70s. The Komsomol and the USSR, the so-called School of Communism, their members were taught to be the leaders of tomorrow. But what about American socialist and communist youth groups? What was their role? Were the two countries' groups connected in any way? How did they influence society? Dr. Peter Gilmore was a member of the Young Workers' Liberation League, or YWLL, in the 70s. He has a Ph.D. in social and cultural history from Carnegie Mellon University and is a current professor of history at three universities in the Pittsburgh area. I spoke with him over the phone about the influence these youth groups had and about global connections youth groups made.
5: Uh, There was a sense of participating in a truly global movement, which of course was linked back to the youth movement of the Soviet Union, uh, the all. You know, it, it didn't impinge greatly on daily experience or outlook, but there was a sense of belonging to something that was really worldwide. You know, there's a truly international movement that linked, linked up us young people in, in Bridgeport, Connecticut, with... Youth in Cuba and Vietnam, uh, places targeted by by the U.S. government as well as in Africa and in, in the Soviet Union. So that was that was sort of a cool thing, you know, knowing that uh, it was just not us against you know the, the local cops or the FBI and, and the whole establishment, but we had allies, um, some who were actually. I mean, sort of literally in the trenches uh, in Vietnam, but also around the world.
6: Based on his experience, I asked Dr. Gilmore his thoughts on the most significant tasks the YWLL did revolving social issues.
5: How really important it is to make the uh, fundamental connections between jobs and peace, social needs and military spending, racism and budget cuts, All that all these things are, are bound together and have an impact on all of society, but especially young people, um, and the, the absolute importance of a couple things, of the, the important roles that working people have, and as a youth organization young workers have, um, but, and also the, the need at the same time to build a multiracial organization. Was one of the absolutely cool things, actually, about the YWLL was its multiracial and anti-racist nature, and that's and that experience of of working with African American comrades and having African American leadership is uh, very valuable. I've carried away from those you know years, decades ago with a continuing sense that there is still and very much a need for those who are socially and economically and politically disadvantaged to unite in a multiracial organization that will try to create meaningful change, build social progress and oppose war.
6: From the YWLL to a Trotskyist organization, I spoke with Dr. Tom Twiss, a member of the Young Socialist Alliance, or YSA, in the 70s about his experiences.
4: Okay, yeah, my name's Tom Twiss. Uh, I'm a retired librarian. I was a librarian at the University of Pittsburgh until about uh, two and a half years ago, and I retired at that point. Um, And, um... I was, uh, I'm still a socialist, I was a socialist uh, in the group Young Socialist Alliance here at Pitt uh, through the 1970s and uh, also in the Socialist Workers' Party, which was uh, uh, the uh, sort of parent organization uh, of uh, the Young Socialist Alliance in the late 70s and early 1980s. ...going
3: on around Contien inspired one young Marine to put his feelings into a poem.
1: When youth was a soldier and I fought across the sea, we were young and cold hearts, a bloody savagery, born of indignation, children of our time. We were orphans of creation and dying in our prime.
3: What made you write that, Paul?
4: Well, just the way things are. Eh?
3: The commanders in Vietnam, the men who must decide when ordeals must be born. Look at the ordeal at Conti from a different vantage.
4: Well, the YSA and together with the Socialist Workers Party, um, because they, they work together on these things, I think one of the biggest things that we we affected was the anti-Vietnam War movement. Um, I think the, the the YSA and the SWP's role in in organizing and building the anti-Vietnam War movement was was uh, tremendous. And I sort of came in at the end of that. I had been involved in as I said. Uh, uh, Independently, when I was in college, uh, but I saw uh, some of that when I uh, first joined the YSA here. And on a national level, it was um, it was the organization behind a, a lot of the coalitions that were really building the the big marches against the Vietnam War. And so I think that really had the biggest impact in in uh, in American politics.
6: Like Dr. Gilmore, the YSA was also involved in activism, including the fight against racism.
4: After that, we were also involved in a lot of other um, issues. We were involved in uh, supporting uh, busing in in Boston. We were supporting. We were involved in uh, organizing uh, National Student Coalition Against Racism. Uh, we were involved in supporting the Equal Rights Amendment. We worked uh, in uh, the United Farm Workers. Uh, uh, in in their uh, campaigns to be recognized. Um, we were involved in the, the struggle against um, uh, U.S. Uh, intervention in Central America. Um, there were a whole number of areas in which uh, we played, I think, an important role.
1: And determined that many of the actions and activities of COINTELPRO were really unconstitutional.
4: What you describe is a series of illegal actions intended squarely to deny First Amendment rights to some Americans. How shall we ensure that it never happened again? Uh, in the 1970s is that any kind of limitations on free speech will ultimately be used most against the most progressive groups and the groups of the left. And uh, that was certainly true of our experience um, uh, we as an organization and all the other organizations on the left were, were subjected to intense uh, repression and, and um, investigation by the FBI under the COINTELPRO program. Uh, but that's that was just some of the more recent examples of ways in which restrictions on democratic rights were used against the people who are most progressive um, and we adopted a very strong statement uh, in that regard. Um, so I think that understanding of the, the the connection between free speech, democracy, and progressive politics, that was an important lesson that I still continue to apply.
6: Understanding the connection between free speech, democracy, and progressive politics, the fight for social justice that continues today in groups dominated by young people such as Black Lives Matter, Black Youth Project 100, the Young Democratic Socialists, and the Occupy Wall Street Movement. In the 70s, both Soviet and American groups learned to do social change in the form of communism or in the form of activism and social justice. During the formative period of life, young people today and the young people of the 70s who participated or who are currently participating in these movements are preparing for what's to come. Youth turn into the leaders of tomorrow, so looking back onto these groups, shows you a glimpse into the future and how today's organizations and their movements change society. And that's why these youth groups are so important. I'd like to thank Dr. Peter Gilmore, Dr. Tom Twist, the Studster Cal Radio Archive, courtesy of the Chicago History Museum, and WFMT for their contribution. The music is True Blue Sky by Bitter's.
0: That was Soviet and American Youth Groups in the 1970s and Social Change by Samantha Mason. I hope you enjoyed these projects and look forward to part two later this week. If you'd like to give the students some comments or feedback, please send me a message on the SRB Podcast contact page at srbpodcast.org or leave a comment on Twitter or Facebook. I will be sure to forward it to them. You've been listening to Hearing Communism. And as always, I'm your host, Sean Guillory, and this is the SRB Podcast. The SRB Podcast is sponsored by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Pittsburgh and listeners like you. If you enjoy this podcast and want to help support it, please take a moment to share it on Facebook and Twitter, like my Facebook page, Sean's Russia Blog, write a review, or recommend the show to your friends. The SRB Podcast comes cheap, but it is not free to make. You can help support it by joining the table of ranks at srbpodcast.org. As always, thanks to my High Excellencies, High Wellborns, and Noblestnesses for your continued patronage. And you can find past shows on iTunes and SoundCloud, or you can download them directly from srbpodcast.org as well. Until next time, bye. The Les dames
7: de la terre, debout les forces de la fin, la raison de ton centre terre, c'est l'éruption de la fin, tout passé fait dans ta pour tout l'espoir debout debout, le monde ne va chanter la base. Nous ne sommes pas en tout. C'est le Dieu qui nous et sera le genre humain. C'est le nous et demain. L'internationale sera le Jean du Wake up, you prisoners of hunger! The world is changing at the base. We who have been nothing will be everything. Of the past, we shall make a clean slate. Still peak French, though. says, it's the final battle. Then he says, we need no supreme saviors, no God, no Caesar. Producers, save yourselves. Heat up your own forge. Soufflant nous met notre forge. Blow upon the forge and make it hot. Beat on the iron while it is hot. Il n'est pas de sauveur suprême Ni Dieu, ni César, ni Trébrun Producte, sauvons-nous nous-mêmes Décrétant le salut commun Pour que le val le de Gorge Porterait l'esprit d'eau cachante Souffrant Nous met mon offre aux jeux, pas tant le faire quand il est chaud. C'est le lieu de nous, et demain, l'international sera le genre Roman. C'est le lieu final de nous. I won't sing all six verses, but it says, The kings intoxicate us with gun smoke. If they insist upon making heroes of us, they will learn that our bullets are for our own generals. Workers, peasants, are we all? The world belongs to everyone. How many feed upon our flesh? But if one day these buzzards, these vultures would all disappear, the sun will shine always. O vrai pays en nous sommes, le grand parti de travail. La terre n'appartient qu'aux hommes, voici fira l'orgère ailleurs. Combien de nos se répercent, mais si les corbeaux et vos un, deux, ces matins disparaissent, le soleil brillera toujours. C'est le lutte Groupons-nous et demain L'international sera le genre humain C'est le lutte final. Groupons-nous et demain L'international sera le genre humain